How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, so delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing, with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Our dwarves are now in Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now. And then return to fully appreciate to this bump and a tragedy. Don't you know who I am? I'm the juggernaut, bitch! The following movie is rated R. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, Madness Moxie, and tonight, many more mutations. The Bob Crew is continuing our commentary series for the X-Men movies with X-Men, The Last Stand. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today for this bop in a movie are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I, um, I find myself kind of sexually attracted to the evil scientist lady okay sure i mean i'm not judging or anything that's just i just i her despite her bigotry and i have a hard time with that because i just shouldn't she be rendered unhot and yet what does that say about me as a person as a lover of mutants well you're a bad person but eh, you know okay that's been established up front good i'm a bad person i'm mike napier bad person and say hello to my other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Well, it's easy for you to say, Mike. You don't shed on the furniture. I have a problem. <laughs> I was wondering what would happen if we let that joke hang. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, yeah. it's St. Patrick's Day, and you know what that means. Right, they can't hear me. Alcohol. This will not be St. Patrick's Day by the time no, you listen to this. No, this will be <laughs> so long in the future. Everything you're saying is rendered moot, but go on. Cody's drunk. That's okay. I didn't even know it was that day. Into the fact that we've got an official drink for you tonight before we start this movie. It has nothing to do with St. Patrick's Day, though. Uh, Like, it's not even green. There is no mint in this. Uh, Tonight, we are drinking the Phoenix. What you're going to need is one ounce of coconut rum, two ounces of pineapple mango juice, and one ounce of pomegranate liquor. Uh, Instructions. You're going to take that coconut rum and the pineapple mango juice, shake them together with some ice. Pour the mix into a cocktail glass, and... Oh, I'm sorry. I've already fucked up the order. Throw the whole episode out. Uh, You're going to pour the pomegranate into a cocktail glass and then add the rum or juice mix. Secret tip, it doesn't matter. You're going to do a bad job layering it, and it's always going to look like one red color. Like, they're just going to mix. Don't don't even worry about it. Uh, I picked this drink because I typed in Phoenix into the internet and just wanted to see what would pop back out cocktail-wise. And someone recommended this one because they got it at a local restaurant They took a sip, they realized they loved it, so they came back home and then tried to guess how it was made. Which seems very appropriate for what happened in this movie. Like, 
what if we took an X-Men movie and gave it to somebody else and had them try and make the third part of that X-Men movie? Also, I didn't have any pineapple mango juice, so I'm <laughs> drinking uh, diet sugar-free peach mango juice because I wanted this to be terrible, and I, I just hate myself so much. Can you uh, also, just get made, the ingredients for the goddamn drink you're making I for once? Made, no. Most of the time, Mike, we do good movies, so I try and make good drinks. This time, I was like, nah, fuck it. I can slack off. Uh, also, folks, I always make mine as doubles, so if this sucks, I really have to just power through this. Anyways, let's take a sip and see if I've made trash. This is fine. It's not bad or good. It's fine. So it's actually a perfect representation of the film. Yes, it is. I've done it again. Hey, and folks at home, what I want you to now do is I want you to take all but 25% of that Phoenix drink, pour it out. Then I want you to take a completely different drink and add it to that 25%. <laughs> and now you've definitely created a drink that's perfect for X-Men 3, The Last Stand. He's not wrong. I have a lot of things to say. So let's get to it. <laughs> folks, you've got the drink. You have my snappy segue. Let's cue up the movie. As always, this is a commentary track, so we're going to be talking over the movie. If you want to cue the film up and watch it with us, super cool. I encourage that. Again, I'm not your dad. I'm not the law. You're living in quarantine. You do what you want. Uh, you can just listen to us as a podcast while you pace your apartment. I don't, I don't give a shit. It's your life. We are your only form of entertainment now. You're stuck with us. It's amazing. This cocktail is aggressively fine. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Why do I feel like this is Cody's version of the time Squidward moved to that town where everyone was Squidward? It's God, weird. I'm being besieged by normalcy. Can I mean, our I take, new? I take a drink and it's like the flavor is gone immediately. Like nothing lasts in this drink for more than a second in the back of my mouth. Jesus, can our new tagline be "box office pulp, aggressively fine"? <laughs> Maybe we put that Period. on the banner. Yeah. Like to, can it's we add that on. to the dead E.T., please? <laughs> please, but perfect. Log line. Dead E.T. He's aggressively not dead. <laughs> anyway. We have a movie to watch. Let's get to it. Mike, you want to count us down? Yes. I'm going to count to three. After I say three, we will press play. One. Two. Three. All right, folks. It is time for more X-Facts. This one, directed, surprisingly, Brett Ratner, a new face. Uh, Ratner stepped in to take over directing after Singer decided to direct Superman Returns. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say on that later. Uh, Ratner, you know from the Rush Hour trilogy, Red Dragon, and probably his production company, Rat Pack Entertainment, which has produced just tons of movies. I can't even realize, I didn't, I didn't realize when I started researching how many movies they produced. Like, they're everywhere. He's become like a billionaire off of that production company. Uh, a not-so-fun fact about Brett Ratner, he's a terrible person. In 2017, he was sued by seven women for sexual misconduct and harassment, including X3 star Ellen Page. All right. We'll Screen probably call him Shrimp Simon Dick King. a lot, jokingly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to exclusively be, be referring to that man as Shrimp Dick for the rest of this commentary. It's It's hard not to. I mean, even if all the other stuff, like, wasn't there... It's just a funny thing to call somebody to. Ah, Nick. monster! You know, honestly, rewatching this looks better than Clue. <laughs> Everything looks better than Clue. I'm sorry. I love Tron Legacy. Clue. 
is a monster. Patrick yeah, Stewart was already in pretty good shape, though. Like they didn't have to do much to make you think he was twenty years younger. Yeah, pretty much. They should Although, have just done what they did with Ian Holm for Fellowship of the Ring and just get scotch tape and hold back his face so he doesn't have wrinkles. Is that literally what they did? Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. Ouch. Magneto, though, Ian McKellen, they did something to his face. It looks like he's hovering over his own body. It's very disconcerting and like HD when you watch this for the first time. <laughs> it is. That, it's, it, it's made for DVD. Yeah, nobody's head is, like, the right size. <laughs> they look unnaturally smooth. Not young, they just look like... <laughs> oh, yeah, Patrick Stewart's like head's very small. People. I do love um, Magneto's Magneto hair. It's like, okay, he's young Magneto. We, we gotta give him the young Magneto hair. The swoop. <laughs> uh, with his uh, redemption Magneto fuchsia look going on here. Because right now he's face Magneto, so he can't have like the full Magneto colors. But he, yeah, he's it's it's still still in the realm, though. Anyways, more X facts. <laughs> uh, the screenplay this time was by Simon Kinberg and Zach Penn. Uh, Kinberg, you know, from Mister Mrs. Smith, Jumper, Sherlock Holmes, the Josh Trank, Fantastic Four. Uh, Zach Penn, though, he contributed to uh, Men in Black and Inspector Gadget. And Electra, but also the Avengers and Ready Player One. So you know, Zach Penn up into up until Ready Player One last year was mostly known for being a really good screenwriter who always, always, always had his scripts rewritten. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, John Spates treatment, oh, pretty yeah. much. So for a cast, obviously Patrick Stewart's back as Professor X. We just saw him looking very unnatural. Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, Ian McKellen as Magneto, Halle Berry as Storm, Famke Jensen as Jean Grey, James Marsden as Cyclops for like a scene, uh, Anna Packwin as Rogue for like three scenes, Sean Ashmore as Iceman, uh, Rebecca Romaine Stamos as Mystique. <sighs> There's a lot of people in this cast. Uh, Aaron Stanford as Pyro, Vinnie Jones as the Juggernaut, Ellen Page as Shadowcat, and Kelsey Grammer as Beast, and I think I missed a mutant or two. This cast is retardedly uh, sublime. There's a lot of good names in here. But that's and true. Like, like most 30 Maddoxes, so. Oh. <laughs> uh, before hmm. I go on listing facts, this I thought was a pretty great scene, honestly. This like, scene's the, awesome. I, yeah, the idea that a mutant would be so terrified of people finding out that you'd have to mutilate himself and just the shame of your parents walking in on you. That's a perfect X-Men idea. That's a really solid thing to throw in the movie. Back to my uh, X-Men facts. Music by John Powell. Uh, Powell has been composing since the 90s. He did Face Off, Chicken Run, Shrek, The Bourne Trilogy, How to Train Your Dragon, Solo. Oh, my favorite thing ever. And then we zoom into the gore for the logo. <laughs> and immediately <laughs> things are off the rails. <laughs> uh, our cinematography this time is by Dante Spinotti. He's done a lot of amazing things. The Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Quick and the Dead, L.A. Confidential, Red Dragon, Public Enemies, Tower Heist, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, our editing is by Mark Hellfish, uh, Mark Goldblatt, and Julia Wong. Released May 26, 2006, three years after X2. Runtime of one hour, 44 minutes. Budget was $210 million, which is about $100 million more than X2. Goddamn. Uh, the worldwide box office was $459.4 million. 
So the budget went up $100 million, and the box office went up $50 million. Not great. Danger room. Meanwhile, in Terminator Salvation... Are, are you just <laughs> yelling stuff now, Cody? That's Yeah, that's how I do my scene transitions. Storm! And it's going to be like that for an hour and 40 minutes. You're welcome, folks. Th- that, that is actually how I watch X-Men stuff, is I just excitedly yell things that are happening. All right, stupid Jamie question. Knows. Does Colossus <laughs> actually have that power in the comics? Like, he can transfer his metal to whatever he's touching? That's Rogue. Oh, shit. Okay, I'm an idiot. <laughs> We're off to for a good start. For some reason, I thought it was Ellen Page. Yeah, yeah. So they Thank finally you. managed to get the danger room into one of these things. For a days Which of is... future past. Future, too. Yeah, but uh, listening to the X3 commentary track with Ratner, it's fascinating how they got it in. They always cut it out, they said, because they couldn't budget it in. Like, it wasn't essential to the story, so any danger room scene normally just got chopped out. So his idea was he had to find a way to make it integral to the plot. So it couldn't be cut. The idea they came up with was if they introduce the fastball special here and it gets paid (laughs) off again at the end of the movie, then they have to include the scene. And everyone else went, that makes perfect sense. Which is brilliant. (laughs) Like, they do the fastball special here... And then they try and do it again at the end of the movie, and it doesn't work. So it's one of those deals where it's like, did they really ever need this? I, they were just looking for an excuse to throw it in. And if you're looking for an excuse, why not just put it in? Now, because listen, it's Eric, a Fox we're... movie. You have to figure out a way to get around Fox. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Like, if We're going to go into this extensively throughout this commentary, but let that be just the perfect scene setter. They had to outsmart Fox. To put one last X Men thing in this trilogy. <laughs> I really like that design, that Sentinel head. I just want to. That's a that. good looking Sentinel head. I can, yeah. I kind of prefer its head to the heads we got in Days of Future Past. Oh, definitely. Although I do I, love that design altogether. Yeah. I'm not huge on the Days of Future Past Sentinels. I really I enjoy what they're doing here. I wish we'd seen the full body. And but that I also was also supposed to be gigantic, clunky 50s monsters. Of course. Uh, and in, in the Vaughn version, they were actually still using the uh, singer design for him, the unused one. Um, and the, the Sentinel being in the Danger Room was also meant to be set up for future X-Men stuff, because this was also... Traskin here was supposed to set up Project Wide Awake going into motion in a future film, maybe. Because every because essentially the um, triumphant of... Kinberg, Penn, and Ratner were attempting very hard to leave this open-ended and didn't understand why there should only be three X-Men movies, while Fox was like, but you you stop at number three. Like, I'm fascinated going back in time to when movie studios were just like, no, you do three and that's it. You're not allowed to make any more. Because Star Wars. Yeah, it's it's so strange to see how much everything's evolved, and we've gotten like fifty Fast and the Furious movies, and the MCU, and all this other shit. And it's and then it was like they were secretly filming things and re-editing Last Stand, so that way it could be open-ended, <laughs> so it wouldn't be the last movie because they didn't understand why it needed to be only three X Men movies. Because like Zach Penn wanted his goddamn New Mutants movie. 
I like the silly ways they got around it in some cases, though. Like, they didn't even end up using that in their other movies. Professor X is in a new body. And we'll ignore that. Cyclops is dead. Yes. Like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> they basically just do the comic book thing and go, eh, we'll, we'll just fudge continuity where need be. No one probably remembers exactly how it ended. We can do what we want. I just kind it, of want to... No, go on. I was going to say, it still amazes me that there was a hot second where Cyclops was going to die between movies. And they had to work it up to, no, we'll just have him killed off screen so we can bring him back later. And it's strange to think what we got was actually better than what could have been. Oh, yeah. And even, I mean, it was filmed very matter-of-factly, Cyclops is dead. It was only in editing Ratner was able to conjigurate to where it the question is raised of whether or not cyclops actually died it's through pretty much a lot of stuff was done without studio approval and done in the editing room to make things open-ended and get away some of the finite plot points like the wording of Wolverine saying, I think she killed Scott, asking Gene, did you kill Scott? And that question not being answered, not actually seeing Scott die, Maybe. which was I'll done through editing. Tell. Essentially, if the same creative team were able to make another X-Men movie past this, then for their all intents and purposes in their mind, Scott was still alive. What do you think happened to Scott in that timeline? She totally, I sent, him into, kept... I, she totally sent him into space. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> That's what space. I was about to say. He is totally, like, during the, the plot of the Wolverine, Scott is in space with his dad going on Star Chamber adventures. <laughs> I like to imagine she wrapped him up like in Galaxy Quest and just shot him into the atmosphere. If we can retreat for just a second, uh, how do we feel about Kelsey Grammer as the Beast? I love him dream on one hand he's got the voice for it for sure like all right definitely the the right kind of tone for the character he looks right but kelsey Grammer is not a like a limber man <laughs> well I, I consider uh beast's personality to be his defining attribute as opposed to like you know his skill on the battlefield yeah and as far as being limber goes stuntman's doing that anyway <laughs> Not that it isn't occasionally obvious, like occasionally hilarious, how clearly old Kelsey Clark yeah. under all that makeup. But it, it's not as goofy as I had originally worried uh, when we first like saw the set photos back in the 2000s or like the publicity photos where uh, he looked a little too Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. But on camera, it actually, yeah, I think it, that design actually works pretty well. Oh, yeah, I think the design of it is great. It's really just <laughs> the actor is not a stuntman. And unfortunately, it should be more of a physical spot for him. So it, it just looks weird whenever he has to do like a flip or a tumble or something. Now, if we can go back to publicity stills, remember, and this is my favorite poster of all time, when they released character posters for The Last Stand <laughs> that said Stand Tall. <laughs> and there was one of Professor X in his chair with a big tagline, Stand Tall, like it was mocking him. It was Take a Stand, which is actually funnier. Oh, I'm sorry. Take a Stand. <laughs> so it is really like they were yelling at the poor man. 
But they were telling him to use his uh, mutant blockers that he developed in the 70s. Also, hey, other timeline Moira McTaggart. <laughs> After she had her brain washed by Xavier and became a scientist. Actual Moira McTaggart. Being uncomfortably See, I, attractive, by the way. It's really weird. I know, right? See, this, this has fascinated Mike and I for fucking years. In the world, like, in the re-forged uh, X-Men continuity after Days of Future Past, X-Men Origins and The Last Stand are, like, they're not... Thing, there are things in this movie, specifically stuff like Xavier walking around, like, with uh, Magneto and some of the stuff in Origins that were not canon before the timeline shift. And that is the most X-Men thing in the world. <laughs> like, even trying to describe what I'm talking about is difficult. <laughs> Can you think of another franchise that plays as loose with continuity as the X-Men? Well, you could say uh, Fast and the Furious, but their thing is just, ah, we tricked you. Yeah, like, they kind of retcon themselves, but in a way where they kind of be... They can kind of explain it. They go, timeline shenanigans, this happened, and that person had different motivations than we ever revealed before. So it's funky, but it mostly plays out. You could chart it. X-Men trying to... Well, I mean, once you factor in the time travel and what's going on with, like, Logan, X-Men becomes very difficult to figure out what the fuck is real and what isn't real anymore. But the thing I love is... Like, this is the ideal for screwed-up timelines... All you have to do is ignore the bad movies. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty true. true. I love his fangs so much. I know. You know, I uh, Beast a... was always my favorite X-Men growing up, so... Like, oh, yeah. As much as I don't like this movie, this was... It, my, my eyes lit up the first time I, love I watched his, this. And I love his him. giant X-Ring, by the way. It's delightful. <laughs> You know, I had a weird experience, I think, rewatching this. I had not I had not watched X-Men 3, probably a single frame of it, since it came out on DVD. Same. Yeah, uh, probably same here. So I rewatched this, re uh, listened to the commentary for the first time since the DVD release and stuff. And honestly, I think I ended up enjoying it more than I thought I would. Oh, yeah. I, I had a very I'm weird experience because I think it was it was the fact it's it's now been so detached like it's so old at this point um, it doesn't affect anything anymore like X-Men movies kept going you know um, and just yeah, most of the I don't they're mostly at road off so yeah, yeah. Um, and I just don't care about some of the same the, the, a lot of the stuff the same way as I used to so I think I can look at it more objectively as, like, just a movie and just, like, an X-Men story. And can really see what is both great about it and what's wrong with it at the same time. And it's a very... To me, this is, like, the perfect bop in a tragedy because this could be one of the best X-Men movies ever. If it just weren't for, like, a few things that completely derail the picture in every conceivable way. Like, if, that's what's fucked up. Just a couple of things 
ruin virtually every scene in this movie. Like, like, look at scenes like this, or almost everything we've seen. Like, there's not really a bad scene, necessarily, in X-Men 3. There's not really bad dialogue. Like, things are well thought out. The, the emotion's very well played. The characters are, are well done, for the most part. It's, and the ideas are good. Like, the Dark Phoenix stuff, the ideas in it are good. It just shouldn't be here. It's... It's not it's not even just like it's two halves of a movie. It's 25% of the Cure movie has been removed and replaced with 25% of a Dark Phoenix movie and they cancel each other out. Like they fuck each other. So if and if you can get past the Dark Phoenix storyline being ruined, like this being a follow-up to that cliffhanger on X-Men 2, this being the Dark Phoenix movie, this is an awesome Cure movie. Like, this is a really great X-Men story that's going on. But you have to ignore the phoenix of it all. And the fact that stuff that would be in a Cure movie, more so, like Warren's role, like Angel's role, would be a role in a full Cure movie, <laughs> but he has to be cut out so they can put in the phoenix stuff. He pops or anything with like Rogue. <laughs> Yeah. Angel pops in the movie like three or four different times, and it feels like just an extended cameo. Like, Pretty much, it doesn't feel like he's a true character, even though he's written into the story. Like he's he's around, which is kind of my issue with a lot of this. So many famous actors are in this franchise; it became hard to keep them all in every picture. So for this one, we had people that just didn't have the time commitment necessary to really flesh their characters out and make them a vital part of the story. So suddenly, fan favorites are just around and disappear or have very light roles like all the stuff with rogue doesn't feel quite right the stuff with mystique doesn't feel quite right like uh, it's frustrating you can you can tell they're trying to rail against the limitations and they just don't pull it off yeah they had anna paquin for like a week and a lot of and a lot of that scheduling stuff has to do with fox rushing the movie out of fucking nowhere in order to compete with superman returns it, that fucking blew my mind in doing research. I always knew this was obviously a rushed film. I didn't know this movie was like in pre, like heavily in pre-production before Shrimp Dick got signed, and they were cutting it at the end of every day, like like Kevin Smith did with Red State. Just oh, we got it in the can. Send it to the studio. It's being cut and. Uh, cut and worked on immediately. Because I remember this movie premiered pretty soon after it wrapped, didn't it? There was a very short post-production window. Super short, yeah. Um, it's it's even part of the reason why so much is attempted to be done practically effects-wise in the movie is just in case there wouldn't be enough time to complete CGI effects. Which makes this a practical effects bonanza on one hand, and also shows how tight everything was uh, on the other. There is a great irony, I think. You know, recently, re listen to the commentary, and like, I'm, I'm going to be talking about Ratner purely from like a professional standpoint for this conversation, for this portion of the conversation, uh, old shrimp dick. But the great irony, I think, is like they ditched Vaughn. Like Matthew Vaughn was going to do this before Ratner. Um, and cast some of the characters and stuff and dropped out over creative differences because it was, you know, goddamn Fox. <laughs> so 
they hired Ratner, and I think when Fox hired Ratner, they were expecting, you know, Ratner could really copy, not copy, but, you know, after Red Dragon and shit like that, he could, you could show that he could do visual continuity, which is why this looks still like Singer's directing for the most part. Singer with more money, I guess, essentially. Um, and I think they thought they were just getting someone who's going to point the camera, who would execute, um, you know, their notes and what they wanted, because a lot of the kind of movies that he's made, you, you expect a certain kind of stereotype with Ratner based on the fact he is a piece of shit. So I think unknowingly with Ratner, they got someone who is actually more akin to Singer, someone who cared less about the action stuff and more about the story, the characters, and especially emotional continuity throughout the movie. And someone who is also on Penn and Kinberg's side. Because Ratner's opinion is the writer is the god of the movie, essentially. So he kept them on set. And when they weren't on set, he'd call them for everything. So every stupid studio note would still have to go through Penn and Kinberg to execute. And by the time they, I think, realized this, they couldn't do anything. Like, they couldn't get rid of Ratner to get someone they really wanted that would just do what they – essentially just they could work like a puppet. So you do get this weird kind of finished product that is studio noted to death but does have this kind of prestige execution that – it does actually have a lot going for it as a as a film, not just like as an X-Men film, when Fox really just wanted a quick and fast action movie, short as possible, and to blow Superman Returns out of the water out of pettiness. And I think it's fun to imagine that Fox ultimately didn't get their way. I didn't look up the returns for Superman Returns, but I don't think they were good in any way. It's one of those deals where everyone lost. Pretty much. And it should be, and I think going into a little bit of the history here for a second it is, is there's a bit more sordidness to like the making of, of Last Stand than um, a lot of people remember. So when Singer took Superman Returns, there was no he was not trading X-Men 3 for Superman, which is very much how Fox tried to spin it. In actuality, they were Fox was pissed that he took Superman because it was just a it was a DC property, it was a Warner Brothers property, it was their competition. It was Rothman saw it as he was doing a movie for the competition. In Singer's mind, X Men Three had didn't have a was didn't have a script yet, you know there was some concept art a little bit they they worked on some stuff there was kind of a treatment. It was far down the fucking line, so he could do Superman, finish Superman, come back and do X Men Three. But because really he took looking Superman, looking at the properties, I mean Superman and X Men are such drastically different styles of superhero stories. They're so like, there's no crossover. The same ballpark for competition. Yeah, it's complete, like, dumb, rich man pettiness. 
Um, the famous story is Singer suddenly found himself being escorted off the Fox lot. Essentially fired from 20th Century Fox. Out of nowhere. Expecting his office to remain there for continued pre-production on X-Men 3 as things developed. For him to come and do after Superman Returns. X-Men 3 suddenly had its production... Um, thrown into high gear in order to compete directly with Superman Returns. Now, the character of Cyclops is also part of this pettiness in that Rothman already kind of didn't like Cyclops, but Cyclops would have been the main character of Singer's X-Men movie. Yeah, which would have been a full on Dark or, Phoenix. Yeah, weren't there like arguments between the two in the first movie on like writing Cyclops out of it completely and just having Wolverine lead the team. Yep. Uh, it was always a fight to get Cyclops to be in the movie. It's part of why he was pretty much not in X-Men two. That was a lost fight. Um, but they figured they'd lose that fight and then they'd be able to, okay, we didn't have, we didn't put Cyclops in the last one. So you can let us put Cyclops in this one. That was until, all that stuff happened with Singer, and Marsden took a role in Superman Returns. Cyclops is, quote-unquote, killed and taken out of the Dark Phoenix storyline here as punishment for being in Superman Returns. Yeah, I've never quite gotten the whole conflicting schedule stuff, because it's not like Marsden is in Superman Returns. Yeah. <laughs> like, he is a side character. So I, I just did some quick research. Uh, for box office, Superman Returns made like $400 million. Uh, X3, back to my notes, what did I say before? $459 million. The real kicker is that was the same year that 300 came out, and that made $456 million. <laughs> <laughs> So Warner Brothers kind of got the laugh there because uh, the budget on 300 was 65 million bucks and <laughs> X3, again, $210 million to make about the same amount of cash. Whoopsie. Oh, uh, this is worth pointing out uh, real quick. Storm's outfit here. Um, I love I, I just love this outfit. This like casual kind of X-Men flight outfit. Uh, but what that's from is... Ratner wanted to actually give the X-Men more colorful comic booky outfits in response to fan requests, um, but they didn't have enough time to actually full-on do it. So what you're seeing Storm wearing here is a prototype outfit that they still really? worked into the movie. Uh, so you see it's blue, it's black, it's yellow. That's uh, close to what they would have been wearing if, if Ratner had enough time to actually kind of redo the costume design from the ground up. That's just uh, sort of a remnant of it they still threw into the movie. Fun fact. Ah, floating specs. This is this is just reminding me of when Poochie died on The Simpsons. Mike <laughs> <laughs> Love died Cyclops on the way Cyclops is very Poochie. <laughs> My father needs me. It, it is a shame, because this scene, the way everyone has described it in its original form, like the idea of they visit the lake and it's it's dry, but there's weird effects going on. I think they talk about it a little bit in the X2 commentary too. 
like this is going to be some sort of weird X-Files situation where they go and there's a dry lake bed and floating rocks. All that fog is going to be super spooky. We get a hint of that here and then it just becomes broad daylight and CGI rocks. It's it's too bad they really downplay a really great moment of atmosphere. Yeah. And if and also going back to that pettiness, like the reason there there's kind of twofold reasons why and they're both related, but of why Dark Phoenix is so not in the Dark Phoenix movie and feels like you're suddenly cutting to a different film every once in a while um because that pettiness extended to the the Phoenix storyline that's Singer's movie mm. so it's in here to address it. if there if there was no cliffhanger in X-Men 2 Phoenix wouldn't be in this movie um it's and in honestly, here enough to address the cliffhanger like, they didn't even need to worry about the cliffhanger because it was only implied that she was maybe still around. They could have left that for, like, another movie if they felt like it. They could have, but they just were so against doing it, period. Like, because that was what Singer was building, too. Um, on top of that, Rothman read the Astonishing X-Men run about the cure. Um, which, you know... It's amazing to think of Rothman actually reading a comic book. It's what, Rothman's an interesting figure. It's like... Um, like, Penn's always had, like, a very, like, a lot of weird words to say about him. Like, he's a really interesting, like, smart guy who's really into movies and will read the comics and stuff like that. But he surrounds himself with, like, com like he has stupid ideas, but he wants people to tell him he's stupid, but he only surrounds himself with people who get tell him yes because he's afraid of being told that he's, his ideas are stupid, so you just kind of get everything unfiltered. Like Vince McMahon, essentially. He's very Vince McMahon. Yeah, with, and with like the whole Rothman-Singer uh, thing, Singer I unfortunately do not have a funny asshole name for, so get on that news. <laughs> uh yeah, I've heard a, like a little bit of revisionist history on that uh, since those allegations came out with people saying like, oh, no wonder Rothman didn't want him on set. And I, I've kind of gotten back and gone back and forth on that myself. But ultimately, I, I come to the conclusion of when has anybody in Hollywood actually cared about that enough to fire a director? Yeah, it never happened I, before this. So why would it happen then? Like, granted, there's, I, I, there was a lot of friction between Fox and Singer. Like, there, there have been some, like, reports of, uh, of some drug abuse. Like, there is a story that, uh, uh, I believe was uh, covered in that original Atlantic article that I, I haven't really, I had in my research, couldn't find from anywhere but there. Of uh, sing of production having to close down because uh, Rothman thought that Singer was uh, too high to direct that day, and uh, it it's hard to see like going through the weeds of okay, what's dickhead power moves? What's actually going on on set? It's. Uh, it gets very thorny. And you also factor in, again, like we discussed, the fact that Rothman is, at least in this particular 
period of his career was kind of bonkers. Oh, I was like he. This was the period where Rothman was completely destroying Fox as a as a film company, heading towards their least profitable year. This was around the time they were doing Alien versus Predator, and Rothman was swearing that that was his original idea. Oh, and that, mean that one he, movie they decided to do, even though Cameron was like, please, we'll come back. Ridley Scott and I, we'll do a new Alien. Don't make this. And they're like, no, 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 we got it. But one of my favorite things ever was uh, during one of Rothman's introductions uh, for the Fox movie channel, uh, if, if that's even still a thing. Uh, where he was talking about Alien versus Predator and weaves this entire story about how, like, like how the idea came for to him. And uh, oh, why has nobody ever thought to team up these two Fox properties? <laughs> so in two thousand four, I said to my executives, "Yeah, he went Caesar. He also took credits. Um, I love Magneto's helmet in this movie." Um, I do really like that. <laughs> yeah, I love the black around it. It's very cool looking. Um, he also took credit for the after credit scene of this movie. <laughs> which is super wrong because not only, like, that was a plan put in place between Penn and Ratner, and that was filmed without studio approval. Because once it's filmed, it's like, well, you already technically spent the money on it, so... That's why we have seven different after credit scenes in X-Men Origins. I thought that was the only one of them matters. Style. Hey, there's three <laughs> different endings. You gotta see the movie three times to get them all. I will never get tired of Magneto opening things <laughs> with his magnetism. So you're okay. going to get a couple of fun cameos, which I always appreciate. It's fun yeah. with X-Men to get some uh, little, little bits and pieces in here. Gambit was supposed it's, to be it's a shame in here. Multiple Man gets like three seconds of film time. <laughs> multiple Man you know, almost multiple. got his own movie, but he should get more. Yeah. He's, oh, yeah, he's delightful. He many minutes. There's so many of them. He's multiple, like his name. Ah! And he's got his logo on his shirt. <laughs> I mean, Juggernaut, they at least use the whole time, so that's fun. True. And it's fucking Vinnie Jones. <laughs> How do you guys feel about the movie version of his costume? Not a fan. I, I'm fine with it, honestly. I mean, I'm torn. Like, if they'd done all red spandex over him, it'd been a little goofy. Uh, but there's something about the collar and, I don't know. I don't Unless care for the using... Shatterstar helmet. Yeah, unless you're using full CGI, you can't make a juggernaut big enough, I don't think, to really <laughs> match what he is in the comics. Yeah, so, I, I think for the most part, for a practical juggernaut, it turned out pretty good. I don't mind it. Yeah. I do wish the helmet was a little bit better, but I understand the issues with juggernaut's helmet. I, I, yeah. I think they could have gotten away with just having the eyes there. It's not like Vinnie Jones was a name at this point. Yeah, but True. everything Vinnie Jones does is delightful. <laughs> okay, okay. Anytime I think about this movie, I immediately think of this scene. And but I remember watching this for the first time. This was the moment it really sunk in that, 
oh, this is going to be an all-over-the-place movie, isn't it? Because <laughs> this, I could so easily see there being a great X-Men movie, or even just a, a, an X-Men storyline where this exact thing happens, and you get to see Magneto slowly lose affection for Mystique and her slowly ostracized by the rest of the Brotherhood because she's no longer technically a mutant. And that's slowly leading to her uh, turning against him. That's a really cool idea that brings up a lot of... It brings up a lot of subtleties in their relationship. It, like, it kind of examines the hypocrisy of Magneto this happening in one fucking scene and him immediately turning on her is the most ridiculous oh, thing yeah. in the world. It's like it's something line, Skeletor though. would do. <laughs> it feels very cartoonish. And the way Ratner discusses Magneto, like even in the commentary, he says something along the lines of, oh, I wanted to get in Magneto the Dictator. And, uh... I strongly dislike how Silver Age Magneto uh Magneto is in this film. Really? Like it's without I like as much as enjoyable as it is seeing him speechify and be more of a supervillain Magneto, it just ah, it, it just rings false for me. With this, See, this version is, of the character oh, that we've seen in the first two movies. To me it's an escalation of that of that version of that of of Magneto. It's it's the guy who's also gone to hiding. Like I like the Che Guevara thing that uh you know, Ratner and them were going for with with Magneto. This is like Grant Morrison Magneto. I I really I like how there's hints of something more Claremont like there with him, but he's just he's terrified of the stuff like with the Cure, and he's he's now kind of losing it a little bit. And I I really like this take on Magneto for that reason. It's if only there was more focus on it and we weren't cutting to things like suddenly going from that scene in the Oval Office to a Dark Phoenix scene where there's absolutely well, no like, overlap. Well, that's the problem at the core of this movie. It's like you can't even argue, like objectively argue what works and what doesn't because you're not watching a real movie. Like I've said for years, like I feel bad making fun of The Last Stand because I've never seen The Last Stand. None of us have. Yeah. We've seen this trailer. I just kind of wish that if they were going to make Magneto do a full heel turn, they really would have embraced it. Like, go full on. Make Magneto a 100% bad guy. I mean, make he did try. He did try to kill every living human on Earth in the end of the last movie true. What I'm saying here, though, is in the last scene, imagine if instead of just going you're not one of us any longer, and then walking away, uh, they they go full, full goddamn, like Snidely Whiplash, and he has Juggernaut just stomp the shit out of her right there, like dead. <laughs> like, he just executes his number one general because she's no longer a mutant. If you're gonna lay into that track, go full on. Make Magneto a true bad guy we don't want to be friends with anymore. And then there's this really awkward makeout. It's hot. It's weird. It's weird to think that there was a period where Logan and Storm were going to be banging in this movie. There was <laughs> a lot of sexual far, tension. That far more everyone. interesting plot. 
it feels like they never know what to do with Storm. So, like, maybe she has the hots for Nightcrawler. Maybe it's Wolverine. Who knows? Maybe she's a lone, lone rebel. She doesn't need no man. I do like uh, Storm being pushed uh, into a leader of the X-Men role in this, even if it's kind of shared with Wolverine, but that is kind of what her plot is. It, it is a weird paradox where the stuff with Storm isn't especially good, but at the very least, this is kind of the only movie where she feels like Storm and has oh, yeah. the Storm role in the team. She has Storm opinions and whatnot. Also, I never noticed the pained face of James Marston screaming in those glasses like he's fucking Josie in that episode of Twin Peaks. Don't he's uh, losing control. <laughs> yeah, honestly, if they could have stripped all of the Phoenix stuff from this movie, I would have enjoyed it much more. I think all of the strong philosophical ideas come from the cure section of the Very story. Very much so. It's great. Like, so many scenes... scenes are on that side. Yeah, like, so many scenes are just gold, honestly, on the on the cure side of of stuff. I mean, the movie's ticking along fantastic until Gene shows back up. And the Phoenix stuff is more or less just ideas for a Phoenix movie that only has a couple scenes to, like, show you the ideas. And they're good ideas. I like the ideas. Um, but, you know, we're back off of the Phoenix stuff after that scene. God. And it's just, the Phoenix never quite feels developed. I don't think we ever get to know Jean enough as a character for this to feel justified as a conflict. No. We just get some exposition scenes of, of where it comes from. And I like the the idea of where the Dark Phoenix personality comes from, from a non-cosmic point of view. I actually really like that. If you were to strip the cosmic stuff out, um... The idea of the suppressed power because it's a psychic power it just develops its own personality and it's, you know, lustful. And that's still the that's still the core of what Dark Phoenix is. Um, and a bit of the uh, the chained woman stuff that's from the Dark Phoenix storyline. And you get questionable Xavier out of it, which is even better. Um, yeah. Like, there's so many great ideas ideas there for an amazing Dark Phoenix movie, but it's relegated to, well, like eight scenes? Yeah, about. And it's so difficult for something like that, where it's mostly a psychological conflict. Like, how, how do you express that in a major blockbuster film? You still need to wrap action scenes in around all this stuff. You gotta make it move fast. It's gotta be two hours or less. But you still have to get into deep-rooted psychological character moments. And somehow visualize that because that's what the character's going through. It's not really what this movie's forte is, and that's what their sticking point is. If if that stuff doesn't work, the rest of the movie doesn't work. I don't know why Magneto strolling down the suburbs is the funniest thing in the world to me. Because he's dressed in, like, full cape, and then the guy next to him is in a suit. It looks like such a weird mishmash. I almost have to shoot Vinnie Jones like he's ten feet tall. He is. I just feel bad for him having to wear that giant collar all the time. That's got to be annoying with your head. That (laughs) costume was apparently very warm. I bet. Even though, like, you know, nipples are out. Though there was behind-the-scenes footage of him dancing in it, which was delightful. (laughs) 
And even this, like, I love this is played as a horror scene. It's just, why is it in the Cure movie? Like, the Cure plot just stops for a while to do some Dark Phoenix stuff that's yeah, they, mostly they unrelated. Yeah, they take turns. They don't mesh them so much. Even in the finale, like, they do the Cure stuff, and then they go back like, oh, right, Dark Phoenix was here all along. Uh, wrap that plot up. Yeah, if Phoenix... I mean, if they went with the some of the original idea stuff from Singer's version of Dark Phoenix, where she was kind of her independent entity looking to just kind of wipe out mutants and humanity and kind of take the war into her own hands, you could still play that here, and it would still mostly work, but it would still be a movie that would have to have the Dark Phoenix in it, and that wasn't allowed. So you just have her be Magneto's lapdog, just stand there off to the side. Which you also get a little bit of a moment of them kind of making fun of that in the commentary. <laughs> like, oh yeah, and Jean's just standing there. It's such a cool idea to fold the idea of the dark phoenix and of her and of that storyline revolving around her being like this ultimate get for different factions of mutant kind yeah and le- and folding that into magneto and his mission cuz magneto is completely absent from the dark phoenix uh, saga like swapping uh, sebastian shaw for magneto is such a brilliant idea it's up. It's something they would do in a modern Marvel movie now. Uh, it, it's it's heartbreaking to see that just kind of limply fall onto the floor here. Yeah, it's just nothing really done with it, other than you get kind of one scene between her and Magneto, and that's about it. I love Storm uh, having. Uh... Fucking Hagar's special move from Final Fight. <laughs> I do love how we still get Storm versus Callisto throughout the entire movie. Because some things are forever. <laughs> also, I love that shot so much. That shot's great. What frustrates me is, like, there's a mix on action in this scene. So we have Juggernaut just throwing Wolverine up through the ceiling, and then he falls back into another room. That's great. But the first piece of choreography, like when Wolverine charges Juggernaut jumps over him and does a flip and lands on his face even though he wasn't touched like <laughs> what what was the plan there i don't quite understand what they were going for in the choreography with that because well, he I, was like it, well he was not blow, bowled over by juggernaut it looks like he's making a jump though and it just it seems poorly choreographed there's there's parts that look okay and parts that look very bad there's also there's a, a mix like second to second is great and the second second's bad so yeah. I, just love, I just love Storm and Callisto fighting and suddenly Wolverine goes thrown through a wall beside them. <laughs> it's very comic books. There's also a great moment uh, in the extended version of this fight where Wolverine stabs Juggernaut through the arm and doesn't do anything. Act! Act, <laughs> Professor X! Act like you've never acted before! <laughs> Magneto just on the floor of a kitchen, struggling, is amazing. God, what an odd death for Professor Xavier, all things considered. It's like, I know they thought it was a cool visual to see a floating house, but nowadays I can only think of up. <laughs> so so that's what happened to Xavier. Well, I'm sorry up exists for you, Cody. I No, give me up every day. I think back to all the fan reaction around this movie, and how... 
even to to myself somewhat, um, how ridiculous it is when you look back on it. Especially like Professor X9 and how much this pissed people off. The idea of being angry in an X-Men movie for Professor Charles Xavier dying might be one of the most ironic fan reactions to quote-unquote comic book faithfulness not being done justice. Especially in the Dark Phoenix movie, Professor X dying. Ugh. And also not really uh, dying, so it's a moot point anyway. That was the silly Listen, thing. I, nobody really paid attention know. to the after credit scene. That didn't exist for people. <laughs> I just like... I remember getting an argument... I didn't even really care for this movie that much when it came out, but I still remember getting into arguments with people back when I cared to get on ar arguments with people on the internet about... Like, okay... You keep saying the movie's bad, but you gotta give me something else. Like, you gotta say something else other than Cyclops dies. Like, as a movie, like, I can name things that are wrong with it. Can you name things that are wrong with it, too? Like, you have to say something else other than Cyclops dying. And people still, to this day, don't really do that. Like, I don't think most people even really remember why Last Stand is considered a bad movie. Especially when you go back and look at it, it's not all that particularly bad. It's just not... It's not the Dark Phoenix, and it's not a, a good follow-up to X-Men 2, but as a standalone X-Men story based around the Cure plotline, like its own plots, if you ignore the Phoenix stuff, there's nothing really inherently wrong with it, um, save for a few things. It strikes and, a flat note, and I think it goes back to what Film Critic Hulk says about how most people report back on movies. Like, if someone doesn't like a film, it's more than likely than not they're not a film critic, so they're going to pick up on superficial things. Something's rotten underneath, but they don't know enough about the structure to tell you what. They just know something isn't stable about the end product. No. So they pick at things like, oh, Professor X died. Uh, Cyclops died. That was silly. made me laugh. They somehow they can tell there's something wrong underneath that, but they wouldn't be able to pinpoint it. And I think even as a kid watching this movie, I would have the same reaction. Like I couldn't tell you exactly why it was wrong, but my danger sense was tingling. Like, oh god, something horrible is right. <laughs> well, the problem with Xavier dying isn't that Xavier dies. It's that Xavier dies into the audience, it really doesn't mean that much. Like the two characters we've seen love Xavier throughout these movies aren't present to mourn his death. Like and even Cyclops is in space. Off. Yeah. We get like after that scene we get like one line from Magneto of him mourning Xavier, and then the plot has to happen. Because we don't have time to slow down for five seconds in this movie. We're not we're just, we're all, we're only allowed to be an hour and forty four minutes long. Yeah, Xavier's death is, like Scott's death, is just more noise. Jamie, I really thought for a second what you were going to say was, the problem isn't that Xavier dies, it's that he lived it all. <laughs> I agree. Without his legs. <laughs> but that, that goes, the biggest problem for me about that death is, for two movies, 
the strongest part of the films in my mind was the weird friend-enemy relationship between Professor X and Magneto. You don't typically get that kind of relationship between bad guys. Like, they normally don't come back in every movie. They they aren't really friends. You know, maybe they, they appreciate each other, but not to the level that you get in these films. And in this movie, like, Magneto mostly shrugs it off. Like, it's not a huge deal to his character. Which bothered me. It felt like that should have been a driving point in the story if if I was the one in charge writing shit. And one of the weird things, I guess, too, is looking back on the movies all the years later, it was reinforced by the prequel reboot series that these two were friend enemies. At the time, this was only the third movie in the series. They were still developing that. So it wasn't as hardcore, I guess, in the canon as we think of it now. So in my mind, looking back, it's even worse in this regard than it was at the time it happened. It says a lot when pretty much everyone making the movie didn't want to kill Xavier. It's kind of a silly move. Uh, Penn was very clear on that. He wanted Xavier for, at the time, he was making a New Mutants movie. He was writing it, and I think he was may have uh, been planning to make it his directorial debut. So, uh, But he pretty much burned the Fox bridge. Um, as soon as X-Men three came out, every interview he got, he did was just pretty much fucking, uh, Fox up the ass. Um, <laughs> so that movie was not happening. Uh, you know, Kinberg didn't want it to happen. Uh, Ratner filmed the, uh, twin scene secretly. He even had the, uh, actress playing Mora come out for the funeral scene to reestablish her. um, without Fox knowing like all that shit would happen behind Fox's Fox's back as far as killing Xavier. And I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with killing Xavier in either the dark Phoenix movie or even the cure movie. Like if he was assassinated, um, you know, by something maybe related to Trask or, or whatever, um, that would have been really interesting and really propelled, uh, Magneto into being even more unhinged than he already was kind of getting with the with the cure floating around. Yeah. But no like, one really wants it to happen. Fridge, Professor it, X. <laughs> it's it's in there because Rothman thought it would be a cool moment in the movie, and maybe they should have adjusted to it a little bit more and just worked on it more to make it more, hit more solidly. Uh, though I do think maybe they did the best job they could have under the circumstances because. You know, it's uh, I cannot imagine what it was like to write this goddamn thing. <laughs> um, uh, oh, Mike, t- talk about the greatest forum post of all time. Okay, so um, <laughs> this is something almost no one remembers. Uh, during the making of X-Men 3, Zach Pan began posting on the X-Verse forums, which don't even exist anymore. I tried finding old posts, but uh, they're pretty much, even on archive, they're pretty much wiped. Um, and he was answering a lot of questions. He was also being fairly honest for the most part, uh, to, a, to a degree anyway. Um, uh, but he would talk a lot about the production and, and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff in regards to working with Fox under implied duress. So this was made dead smack in the period where Fox got into the idea of Frankenscripts. Uh. Uh, so they would have one writer write one 
script, they'd have another writer write another script, and then they would have a third writer come in and combine the two scripts together in some kind of weird Franken movie. Um, they did this practice a lot. It's why most of the quality of their films went to shit. Um, Kinberg and Penn pretty much refused. Like Penn's exact words were, we didn't want that bullshit to happen. I remember that post, like it burned <laughs> into my memory ranks. We were not going to let that bullshit happen. So they teamed up on the script because I think Penn was writing the Dark Phoenix stuff. Kinberg was assigned the Cure storyline. So they thought like, okay, if we combine our efforts, we can at least make this kind of gel to the best of our ability. If we Frankenstein it ourselves, it'll be fine. I love the idea of covertly collaborating on a Franken script. <laughs> Again, a true fool, Fox. So that leads us th that those experts for, uh, forum posts, which gave such insight into the, the hell of this production, um, led to. What Jamie was referring to is the greatest forum post of all time, and it really sums up a lot of X-Men 3 and why I think people need to ease up on the people who made X-Men 3. And even you ease up on X-Men 3 a little bit because the, the environment in which it was made, be impressed that this movie has any depth to it. Any sense of just artistry and crafts, it's impressive when you actually boil it all down. After the movie came out, there was this weird reaction a lot of people had calling Penn uh, and Ratner and Kinberg, but mostly directed at Penn because he was online, uh, liars. And they were, you know, they, you know, Penn. De deceived everyone. Um, and I remember I just saw a post when I was looking for the expert stuff of someone saying Ratner was like this giant liar who who led us astray and all that because he said the script was good. It's like what what the f he's the one making the movie. What's he supposed to say? And thank it's like, God, fandom's nothing like that anymore. I know. It's like oh, nothing's changed. Um, it just instead of it being on some forum. Also, I love this joke on some forum that you can just not ever see. It's just on Twitter, so it's always on your in your face. Um, Penn didn't say anything for a couple weeks after X-Men 3 came out. You know, he, he didn't start doing the podcast and interview circuit where he would just shit on Fox constantly uh, quite yet. <laughs> or make up. It was in the novelization. <laughs> um, he suddenly showed back up on the X-Verse forums after being gone for about a week or two, and he and he simply posted one thing and then disappeared from it. He posted an excerpt from the script. And the excerpt was just um, a line of description from the third act of the Phoenix Firebird unfurling in the skies over, over San Francisco. You know, the, the flames lapping out at the cosmos and... All the all the destruction it was causing as it stretched out into the sky and everyone looked up at it at all. And then underneath it, he simply posted, sometimes we don't get what we want. 
And then he dropped the mic on internet forums, and they were just gone after that. <laughs> that's that's why, why, why they don't Twitter. exist anymore. And the world was a better place. Yeah, anytime so anyways, I, I want to go back and complain the... about this movie, because in a previous scene with Rogue... Actually, if I can drop the fanboy voice, I, I am really annoyed at all the stuff with the Rogue in this movie. Like, we've gone way past it, but the ice skating scene... Please stop doing this in movies where you have one character look out longingly at two other characters hooking <laughs> up and without even confirming that they're into each other, just stomping off. Like, stop it. That's that's bad. You've never don't done that? do it anymore. No. I don't go outside. <laughs> Cody's we'll self-contained. Get... He's a good citizen. <laughs> we'll get to the rogue stuff, citizen. but Jamie, you were saying? Uh, I was just going to tag up like on that with it's weird to think that this plot line is just a rogue plot line she was going to have with a gambit. But for several reasons, they just reversed it and gave it to Iceman. So you're just watching two characters you barely know, one you only just met, carrying on like this clandestine flirtation, <laughs> while the main character of the first movie is watching from the shadows. And it's very bizarre. Uh, also should be stated, why wasn't Gambit in the movie? Um, because Fox got really into him being in the first, uh, even though it hadn't been developed yet, but Rothman got into his head like Gambit's big movie should be uh, when we do the uh, Wolverine spinoff. So he was going to make a cameo here, but uh, that was axed by uh, Penn Kinberg and Ratner because what a waste that would be. Uh, so yeah, he was removed here to save him for a cameo in a different movie made a few years later. So, yeah. Do you think we're ever actually going to get that Gambit movie they've been promising for like the last 15 years? No. I don't either. They keep attaching people to it and it's like, "Mm, you can stop. This isn't, this isn't going to work. I think that died when Fox ceased to exist as a company. I think the MCU will try and put a gambit in somewhere. Look, Marvel can barely get a gambit comic series to last longer than a year or two. Everyone go read Mr. and Mrs. X. It's really good. <laughs> also, Arlie Ermey in an X-Men movie. Can we just marvel at that for a second? <laughs> Shouting, no metal, no metal. How come in this version of the world, the government is really fast at responding to drastic change? Like, oh, Magneto threatened us. Better have plastic guns everywhere. Uh, this president's good. Mm. I was going to say, maybe it's because it's like war instead of health. Like, oh, no, war, we've got that. <laughs> well, it's also, technically do... racism. <laughs> racism war. They're especially good at that. I do want to um, speak for a minute on Rogue's plotline, ultimately. Please do. Um... I have a lot of mixed feelings on it. Um, I disagree with people strongly about her wanting to do the cure and and even her end of getting the cure. Is that is a thing Rogue literally flat out did once. Um, I mean, I'm not opposed to it as an idea. I think conceptually it gives you a lot of drama you could work off of. I agree. Um, I mean, once again, they didn't have Rogue for very long. I mean, half the reason she <laughs> right, even... the wrong character to use. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and half that. the reason she even goes to do this is because they literally needed her to go do something that was somewhere else. <laughs> Otherwise, she's literally just... They had to, like, just say, like, oh, she went on vacation somewhere. Like, it's ridiculous, and 
very sad. It's once again because the movie was rushed. But Rogue even getting cured, I think, is a really bold choice and sets up for a really interesting further story, I think, that, you know, we wasn't able to be explored. And I think everyone making the movie wanted to explore it more. It's not, I think people take it the wrong way that, oh, well, Rogue's cured forever and this sends a message. I think it's supposed to be Rogue kind of made the wrong decision. But it's also a very complicated decision that's supposed to, like, leave you... That makes you... You're supposed to make you think a little bit on where Rogue's been. And I appreciate they shot it both ways, but it's a, it's a hell of a choice at the, with what they went with, with her actually going through with the cure at the end. And, you know, I I think you could have created a really interesting X-Men movie actually going off of the various setups for future stories in this somewhere, but it didn't happen. But I do appreciate some of the choices they made with that. They're a little ballsy. Well, I, well, I think what sours people on it is there's not really a button to it. She just gets the cure and that's the end of the story. <laughs> It's just a cliffhanger, yeah. pretty much, ending for something maybe in the future. That's it. Well, and there's that old Tumblr joke, too. Like, Rogue, you can't get the cure. Being a mutant's great. <laughs> and the people saying that are basically normal people, and they're saying it to people who have, like, fucking chainsaws for hands. Yes, yeah, but I've never quite been... I've never had a problem with Rogue... Like, the, with Rogue's uh, decision, like, sending the wrong message or something. Is Rogue's power is terrible and makes it difficult for her to live her life. And the only thing she can really use it for is to protect herself in fights. Yeah. It's supposed to show that some matters are a little bit complicated when it comes to the mutant stuff. Again, it's up. I'm almost certain there's some kind of button to that plot line for the third for the end of the movie, like some kind of epilogue that's just on the cutting room floor. Cause it's so weird that it's just, I got the cure. It was my decision. Goodbye, Rogue. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's just gone from the movie. <laughs> and then it's rendered even stranger because we realize that hence, you know, Magneto being able to juggle the metal pieces around at the end, that the cure isn't even like a final thing. Like you can, develop a resistance to it after a while or they would have to constantly keep injecting the cure to keep it up i'm fascinated that as far as kinberg was concerned that scene took place many years later uh i always had the impression this was like two weeks later same I, well they I, are I, fixing the bridge happened. but i think there is supposed to be a little bit of at least a couple months of a time jump but yeah and there is I mean, there's been rumors of other versions of that ending scene of like Mystique showing up with something that would reverse the cure. Just in general, the, you know, their idea of essentially like, yeah, the cure just doesn't really last, which shows that they, you know, Ben and Kimberg didn't, weren't really quite on board with it, despite doing a really good job with the cure storyline. But because they couldn't really make an end to the fact that there was a cure, it was just like, it wears off after a while. <laughs> that was about it. God damn it, Leech. I know, I, I, I could see them maybe if they did a, you know, an X-Men 5 based off this, you know, maybe the cure mutates into, like, the legacy virus or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, that's one of the ideas I was kicking around in my head. Just thinking about the cure, 
if they were to do that now, people would be very confused because they would just automatically assume this would be some sort of anti-vax storyline. Like, I don't even think vaccines are as simple as they were back in the Holocene years of 2006. What a simple now you'd time. Have people, yeah, you'd have people saying, oh, it's a government thing. You'd have people saying that it's a hoax. You'd have people complaining about the health effects of it. And there'd be a more nuanced, wrinkled approach to giving a people a, a shot. I want everyone listening to this to know I am 100% in favor of vaccines. Get your kids their fucking shots. I don't want to come <laughs> Thank off God. Being like, oh, audience was on the matter. edge of their it's fucking not. seats. It's a really simple matter, but people have made it into this big debate trying to question the use of vaccines. And I think that would have translated into a film like this where you have areas to explore something like that. Box Office Pulp recommends vaccinating your kids. Get a shot science. and wash your hands. I love how they uh, brought back the uh, one, one goggled guys from X-Men 2. Oh, the purifiers? Yes. Also, Duke is Trask. Can we just marvel at that for a second? <laughs> that happened once. That was awesome. I like how we got two mutually exclusive stunt-casted Bolivar Trasks. <laughs> go, it's only the most man, important go. character in the world. Like, Bolivar Trask must always be played by an amazing character actor. <laughs> we haven't brought up um, Murphy as um, uh, Worthington. Who plays a really, I think, a very unique, like, interesting, not, I wouldn't say villain, side obstacle, I guess would uh, be a better description for Worthington. But I, I'm really taken with what a difference he is between, you know, like Kelly and, and X-Men 1, then you get Stryker and X-Men 2, and then you get you get Worthington creating the cure. And it's it's this strange, like, other side of bigotry where in his mind he's not bigoted. Like, all of his actions are from bigotry. And it's this is this is disgustingly realistic, unfortunately, where he oh, yeah, does think he's therapy. doing something good. He is helping them through removing the thing that's that makes them different. So it's it's progress through bigotry. It's it, it's an interesting direction for the films to take. Also, love how Beast's outfit doesn't quite fit him anymore. It's a very <laughs> subtle joke there. I like it. Yeah, once again, it's one of those things that just makes you ache for a version of this movie that has room, like has some elbow room in it, so we could actually get to know some of these new characters and and what makes them unique is again, like you said a hundred times during the this episode, it's all there. Yeah. <laughs> what still astounds me that this is supposed to be the grand finale to the X Men movies. They bothered to call it The Last Stand. It was the part three. This is the closing. Characters are dying. And they made it pretty short. Now, I'm, I'm generally opposed to action movies being two, over two hours. But if you're going for something epic, I don't know if you can accomplish that in like an hour 40. <laughs> that was all a money-making scheme from Fox. They wanted to play it in a theater an extra day. Yeah. Yep. That's something that's kind of forgotten, I think, about Fox at that time. They got obsessed with movies being as short as possible and a lot of people uh took it as 
it's an attention span thing. Like they want action movies being as short as possible for attention span, lowest common denominator. It's not that. It was you can fit more screenings in a day mm-hmm. uh, if the movie's shorter. Now, the ultimate irony of this is what was the big pop culture series rocking the movie theaters at the time? <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. All 600 hours long of them. And we just gotten off the off of the Lord, Lord of the Rings, Rings movie. <laughs> Spider-Man 2 is like two and a half hours long. And Fox kept losing money by doing this. Like, it was fucking insane. Oh, this era of Fox was absolutely Principal Skinner saying, nope. It's the children who are wrong. <laughs> what do you think is Gore Verbinski's shortest movie? Because I'm trying I, to think, like, even Mouse um, Hunt, I'm pretty sure, is six hours long. Uh, a video Mouse he once shot long. of him jerking off. <laughs> and that was still an hour and 42 minutes. Like, I love Verbinski movies, but A Cure for Wellness is almost three hours long. The Lone Ranger, I think, is like two and a half hours long. Rango is like close to two hours, and that's animated. I honestly think Rango might be as short as well. Well, he also did The Weatherman and The Ring. I think those are like. An I hour think The Weatherman's the right? shortest, right? Uh, Maybe yeah, The yeah, Ring. I actually didn't know Verbinski directed that. Yeah, Weatherman, I think, is a solid ninety. The Weatherman is an hour forty-two. Okay, maybe it's Mouse Hunt. I bet it's Mouse Hunt. This is what people tune into podcasts for. <laughs> <laughs> hear me live google how long gore verbinski movies are also oh, hey dark... gene's just there hey gene um i do love how colorful all of this looks also they are on the fucking bridge by the way i love how this is practical <laughs> Jesus they Christ. just even... filmed on this bridge that day yeah uh even even mouse hunt is an hour 39 that is long for that plot yes uh, so i do love the phoenix outfit kind of like it's not my favorite thing but it does look kind of cool so mike in, in our group chat you posted a, a story about how originally the whole golden gate bridge was supposed to be a middle uh action piece like this was going to be like a second act kind of thing they threw in and the final battle was supposed to take place amongst like the monuments of washington dc and once I read that, it went. It made me feel pretty bad because I thought, oh, that would actually be perfect. I don't know. Maybe Alcatraz works in the end, even though it's not truly Alcatraz anymore. They're using it as a research facility. But I like the idea of them fighting in Washington, D.C., just because it really fits with the iconography of the first two movies, where the, you know we have fight scenes in the actual White House. We have fight scenes in the Statue of Liberty. Maybe it makes sense to have a battle in a classic jail as that third part, like the classic American jail. But I like the idea of them actually fighting over like the soul of American politics in DC. Yeah, that's I a mean, it's, really great idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. I understand Ratner's point for reconfiguring it uh, from a few different standpoints. Probably a little bit was we're not going to have the amount of time to do two gigantic set pieces. Just combine them. Um, and the Golden Gate Bridge thing is cool, so keep that. about how the X-Men got from one side of the country to the other. <laughs> um, and the other thing is, I do see his point, which is, yeah, how many movies have ended in, like, Washington, D.C. at this point? Let's, like, let's do something different. And it did. And X-Men has a lot of history in San Francisco, too, so it's a little bit of a nice, yeah. you know, callback. I think it would play better if the final battle actually on Alcatraz Island made more use of Alcatraz. 
It's very inexplicable that it's out. Like it made all the sense in the world to me whenever I saw that Kinberg and Penn wanted Alcatraz to be a mutant prison. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, is there to tie together? What? What? Why is, is Worthington Labs in the National Monument of Alcatraz? <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't think about it too much. It's fine. Yeah, there was enough time for like two drafts, so they didn't get to a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff got copied. This is a very copy pasted script in places. But like you said, like a, this being a mutant prison would make a lot of sense, and it could be a cool scene. This I don't know. Uh, it's certainly a big action scene, but all the mutants are dressed like background characters, so. Yeah, it's. I I really like this action scene though. I think it's pretty cool. It's a very like comic booky end fight too. Get a lot of cool stuff. My problem is just real nitpicky that I get mad that Magneto tries to do his magnet trick, even though like he should be able to tell there's no metal in the guns, and then he just kind of stands around for a while and lets his troops take it. Like, Like, dude, bring metal with you. Right, you've got a bunch of cars on a bridge right behind you. He does use metal. He does eventually. Like, he lets all this go down, and they have a second wave attack where he starts pulling up the cars. Oh, he was, was just getting... Like, have, like, it it all makes weird. sense. He was letting them use up most of their ammo. I left their uh, starship troopers guns. <laughs> I love the subtle sci-fi stuff of the military in this movie. That's... <coughs> that, excuse me. That's something that's consistent along well pretty much all of the x-men movies is the subtle sci-fiization of the military and their gear well this does take place in the near future it's like in a year 2000 sketch every time he said the thing (laughs) the one call too be sitting upside known. down and fi- and be saying, oh, my stars and garters was something Feige fought. Well, he didn't fight, but he was like, Beast has to do these two things. <laughs> the one time somebody in X-Men movie does the thing. <laughs> he said the line, hooray. I'm obsessed with that mutant who's like, got like the charred flesh and like he's made of stone and shit and just shoots volcanic ash at people out of his mouth. That's a really cool power. He wasn't trying to murder anyone. He was just begging them to shoot him full of the cure. Like, help me! <laughs> oh, I can't eat baked potatoes! This is all very cool. I just want to say that. Like, I really like this end fight, and the X-Men come down like the X-Men and do X-Men stuff. <laughs> I like how this and this Deadpool... Too. I think it's pretty much this and Deadpool 2, where you see the X-Men just... Show up and start kicking ass as the X-Men. <laughs> Just because there's a problem. And teamwork. Adam Warrock's teamwork starts playing over this. It's delightful. <laughs> it could use some more Nightcrawler. See, I love how they were still all for bringing Nightcrawler in. They just had to make the business decision. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, flying yeah. out Alan Cumming and putting him through 15 hours of makeup for two minutes of screen time was probably a bad idea. 
Well, I'm pretty sure Cummings too was like, nah, let's please don't, don't, don't make me do this. He, he finally was like, he was for making a cameo. Like he did reveal this in like a couple interviews. He was yeah, finally like cool with, thing. yeah, but they were like, we can't, we just, we're filming X-Men 3. This stuff, shit's bad enough. We can't just do Nightcrawler for a scene. <laughs> we can't spare the hours of that. Well, we especially so many beast. mutants involved, you would blink and miss him. It's yeah. understandable they didn't. It just bums me out because that was a really cool character from the previous movie. Half the reason Storm's hair is the way it is is just so they would have to think less about it so they could focus on other things. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like when she would occasionally have the ponytail in the last season of the cartoon? Exactly. I am bothered that... Um, Colossus doesn't have black hair like he did in X-Men 2, but I assume that was just a... It was speedier to just make him all metal. Yeah. <laughs> he mutated, Mike. So, speaking of Colossus, it blew my mind looking through the research <laughs> and realizing, oh, Colossus was a big deal in this movie at one point. With lines. Yup. <laughs> Fucking Daniel Cudmore, snake bit again. Oh, such a shame. After 2, it was like, oh man, I can't wait to see more of this guy. Poor arm man. Uh, it's crazy to think this random ass team lineup was always on the table. I think even from Singer's days, wasn't it? Pretty much, yeah. There was only going to be a couple differences. But it was always going to be pretty much these guys. Okay, this glorious moment cannot go by without comment. <laughs> Once forever. again, he said the thing. Captured an amber forever. Glorious. I will never understand too. why people are mad about that. That That's the juggernaut line. It doesn't matter. It's not from the comics. Exactly, yeah. I, know. I, was, I, was, I was overjoyed in the theater Why can't things just be fun, goddammit? <laughs> also, independent of the meme, you do not get a, a more juggernaut line than just him being confused. <laughs> saying, I'm the juggernaut, bitch. I mean, I think they should go back and reprogram the old, like, arcade X-Men game so he says that. <laughs> like, a guy shouts out, I'm the blob! I'm the juggernaut, bitch! Like, they just repeat that over and over until you beat him and they stop flashing. But I do appreciate in this fight when they have pairings of unusual powers against each other. Yeah. Like, in this one, you have Kitty Pride who can just phase through things. And the Juggernaut, who is basically a, a wrecking ball. Like, that's a fun way to get some creative action beats. It, it's better than when you have something where it's like, okay, this guy's in a mech suit, and he's fighting a slightly different mech suit. Not to shit too much on Iron Man, but I really appreciate it when we get totally different power sets against each other, and just to see what they can come up with for those weird situations. That's what I like about the X-Men films. They did that... In the first movie, and then just fucking got it out of their system. <laughs> Why am I suddenly straight? <laughs> also, Ellen Page was Kitty Pride Twice, I guess, <laughs> technically. It's glorious. I can't remember, was she a Vaughn casting? Or? I can't remember who was a Vaughn casting. I know Vinnie Jones was. Yeah. Somebody else uh, I... was, but I forget who. I don't remember if it was Paige or... 
God, and this was before Juno, right? So this was pretty much them discovering Ellen Page. Like, this was hot off of Trailer Park Boys. Yeah, I think Juno would hit you up. Uh, Juno was 2007. Yep, a year later. <laughs> I also have a feeling, though, that Juno might have been filmed for, like, nine years. <laughs> Probably. Also, even in this version of the movie, they even try to get Angel into the final fight, but it just never really worked out. I I'm love here, how... Dad. I'm here. Let's fly off screen. God, we were just talking about like just how weird it is that they lucked out with Ellen Page. It's so weird watching this now and thinking, oh, there's just Ben Foster. Yeah, Ben <laughs> yeah, Foster we... with nothing to do, but like there's Ben Foster as fucking Warren Worthington with the promise of an amazing like story arc in a completely different version of this movie. God, he was Charlie Prince, like what? Three years later. Apparently, also, these are uh, practical flaming cars that are being just catapulted. <laughs> Which is what we should do with old cars. Instead of, like, cash for clunkers, we should donate them to movies to be exploded. All this would be green screen now. Yeah, people forget, at the time, this was the most expensive movie ever made. Just because of the amount of practical effects. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember people freaking out about the budget saying there was no way the movie could make its money back because it cost so goddamn much. And nowadays, I mean, movies cost even more than this and people don't blink. But still, this was at a time where it's like, holy shit, they're spending over $200 million on one of these things? There's something weirdly poetic about the fact that this was the most expensive movie of all time because of practical effects. Yeah. And then, like, two years later, Dead Man's Chest took that title almost entirely because of Davy Jones and his CGI face. But his really cool CGI tentacles. To I really like. Slightly. Oh yeah, uh, I I, uh, I really like Ellen this Page's um... big breakthrough. Hard Candy. We all forgot about Hard Candy. Oh yeah, that's right. She uh... got this off of Hard Candy, I believe. Uh, she got everything off of Hard Candy. Yeah, <laughs> she got Juno from that as well. Um. I also I really like this silent moment between the X-Men coming up with the plan of the cure of hitting Magneto with the cure because it's just it's something you wouldn't expect I think in this movie but in a, in a lot of uh, comic book action movies especially now I think is you, you've now been accustomed to their opinions on the matter of the cure each individual one they of course all have difficult feelings towards it and now they're going to actually use it as a weapon and you get to watch them go through silently the the decision of whether or not they actually do what they're all thinking and i really like how the movie stops and just lets that moment play like it's not all just cars exploding Though That's, we do get the awesome uh, X-Men uh, 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 Dragon Balls shot of uh, Pyro and Iceman fighting. <laughs> so that this really works for me better as a child. Like, in theaters, when this happened, I'm like, of course they have to be nemesises, and they have to fight this way. It's fire and ice! They, that's how it goes! Like, it was destiny, so my little kid mime's like, this is the thing that has to go down this way. As an adult, watching these movies back to back to back, you kind of realize there's not really all that much rivalry-wise between these two characters before this fight. Like, it, it's more kind of implied, and you're supposed to just accept that they're enemies. They were friends, and then they're not. 
Yeah. That's kind of it. Like, we, they don't quite have enough screen time in this or X2 to justify the animosity in that fight. As a kid, I accepted it much more readily because it just seemed like a thing that should be a major rivalry. Well, that's but why, now watching um, them, I'm like, oh, it doesn't work for me anymore. The the scene outside the cure facility uh, earlier, uh, where they get into where Pyro and Iceman get into an argument, was like Ratner told Kinberg and Penn to write that scene so that way there'd be something to their relationship other than they were friends that one time. Right, and without they were hanging scene, out and were really... sassy to each other. Yeah, without that scene, then there's really no reason for them to quite hate each other so much. Shock Magneto over because Iceman walks away right before Pyro burns everyone to death. It's almost implied, oh, like Iceman walks away before it actually happened. It's the I moment in the commentary where they that. make fun of just Phoenix just standing there. Yeah, just edited in from a different movie. Because <laughs> okay, now the cure plotline has now okay, we're done, and now to kick in the uh, Phoenix plotline to finish that off. Let's just uh, slot this in. A lot, of, a lot of staring going on here. I I just want to uh, let the listeners at home know, as they're watching Gene stare off into space, Gene was originally going to become the star child from 2001 A Space Odyssey and uh, leave this mortal plane to go off into the cosmos and create her own life akin to... Dr. Manhattan. It's a very Dr. Manhattan ending. Yeah, she essentially became a god. Like, that fascinated me to know. Like, in the proto version of this, in the actual Dark Phoenix movie, instead of just dying, Jean was going to sacrifice herself and being a phoenix, then rise again as a living god. Before te- before telling Scott, I'll be watching. Which gives you a perfect fucking symmetry with the ending of one and two. Like, actual thought was put into that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And they would have even beat the Watchmen movie to the punch. Like, people are probably more familiar, I would say, with the movie than the comic outside of comic book circles. And they could have just taken that ending. It would have been theirs. Regular moviegoers probably would have thought, oh, that's something novel. Yeah, I guess we should talk more about what the fuck Singer's X-Men 3 would have been, because it it's a hell of a thing, and a lot more than this. Oh, yeah, like, fucking the Danger Room was going to be built by Cyclops out of grief for the team not being strong enough to save Gene. No Cyclops like, thing in the world. That is fascinating. And a much better excuse for the Danger Room to exist better than... Well, we need to wait. Yeah, what if we should? We just want to do the danger room. Wait, don't, don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm all for the only excuse to do the danger room is we want to do the danger room. But damn, is the Cyclops version of it cooler? Yeah, there are storyboards that exist. Like, they were kind of going to beat Wolverine and the X Men to the punch and have. Like, kind of a role reversal with Scott and Wolverine. Like, there's a scene in the storyboards where. Wolverine walks in on Scott just in the bed with a random woman and they have a, an argument and Scott just casually blasts him 
with his optic rays, and he flies out the fucking mansion. Hilarious that was in um, an early draft of this. Oh, that was still in there? I think that was from Vaughn's. Yeah. Oh. Before it got pared down. There's actually, um, I couldn't find them all. There's even more storyboards and concept art from Singer's version of, like, Cyclops battling Phoenix in downtown San Francisco. And there being this huge, like, tidal wave taking over the uh, city and shit, and then the Firebird and and all this. Um, you know, Angel would have had a much bigger part. Um, Emma Frost, is played by Sigourney Weaver, would have been uh, prominent in the plot. Really? As mas- fulfill- fulfilling a mastermind's role, which fucking fascinates me. Yep. Uh, Singer had already talked to Weaver at this point, so it was kind of like a handshake agreement. Oh, man, that would have been neat. Um, Yeah, because they would have done the whole, like, power grab stuff, and then Phoenix would have just had grown tired of the war between mutants and humans and wanted to, as a god, take it upon herself to just tip the balance and wipe them all out. And and it would be up to Cyclops to... uh, to talk her back into to being Jean again, and it would have been a big Cyclops movie, and everyone would have had differing things to do. It would have been very Phoenix focused. Magneto would still uh, been in the plot, but the you know Hellfire Club would have been there. There have been some uh, some other various comic book things thrown in there as well, but it would all been Phoenix focused. I'm starting to scramble through my notes to see if there's anything I have to desperately say before we wrap up. There's one, when I saw this movie in theaters, I remember just hysterically laughing over the somber pan on multiple graves. <laughs> so many people died. I, I think that was it was just kind of weird to like, uh, let's keep moving and another one and another one and don't forget they died. Oh god, it's like the end of <laughs> Uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And there's nothing <laughs> in Cyclopses. And I think they even <laughs> still... And, and there's still been rumors they considered doing something with Jean's grave to imply she rose yeah, again or something. Yeah. But anyways, um, God, one thing that just cracked me up, from the producer commentary, and this is a direct quote, the audience enjoys this confrontation and resolution here. And when he does turn to ice, they cheer. Yes, that's right. Just hearing two human beings saying those things during, like, the dramatic emotional fight between two characters. And it's about fucking Iceman. Yeah, just there's something about it that's so cold and clinical. To be fair to a producer, you've seen this movie, like, 10,000 times by the time it's, you know, the the commentary. And it's the producers of X-Men 3 who have to do most of the fighting. (laughs) (laughs) So they're just exhausted. Yeah. Uh... Pretty much, I think everyone who made the movie prefers the original version of uh, Beast's uh, resolution, which is him quitting the government and coming to teach at the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, one of the deleted scenes. Deleted scenes, not all deleted scenes from this movie are on the DVD. You know, some are just kind of lost to time, but they include a decent amount of them. The most fascinating to me, though, has to be the deleted end to Wolverine's story. Which is him returning to the bar from the first film and encountering the uh, the bartender and stuff and sitting down and 
Beast is on TV getting his medal and shit. And, you know, Wolverine's back in Canada and ominously said he's he's heading home grappling, you know, kind of left the X-Men. It's kind of, it leaves the character on kind of a question mark as to what he's, you know, where he's at, you know, mindset-wise. And what fascinates me is that's his direct setup to the Wolverine. <laughs> that deleted really scene is, is that that's a, the deleted ending to this movie that leads into his mindset and him being back in Canada and the Wolverine having quit the X Men after killing Gene. That sets it all up. It's based on it, whether intentionally and probably not intentionally in any way is based on a fucking deleted scene from X Men Three, and that's so weird to me. <laughs> What I love is Mangold always said, as far as he was concerned, Last Stand was still canon, not Days of Future Past. So I could see him saying, no, that original version is what I'm going off of. (laughs) Once again, it makes it very difficult to plot out how all these movies truly connect. (laughs) Just because you have little retcons like that and some points where they pick up later on, little character moments that don't truly connect. Ah, it's... Mostly my frustration is I, I have my movie spreadsheet where I type in each movie Jesus. I own on DVD. Then I've got a little section in there where I talk about, oh, does this movie have prequels? Does it have sequels? Does it have spinoffs? Does it have remakes? And trying to court, course all of those out when it comes to X-Men just makes me want to quit. Like, sequel-ish, reboot, spinoff. Just put all the abbreviations in there and call it a day. I forgot John Bruno did the effects on this. <laughs> Uh, you know what, it's just, I think it rolls off my back because I'm an X-Men fan. I'm just used to it. I never know what the hell is a continuity and what's not. I just kind of roll with it. Sometimes <laughs> well, a comic will reference something that's in continuity and also at the same time reference the thing that made the other thing that they're referencing out of continuity. So it's just, uh, fuck it, you know, just fuck it. X-Men. Currently a sexy young Cable is being trained by the X-Men who killed the previous... Uh, uh, Full cable, cable. Only in X Men would I allow that. If this were any <laughs> other franchise, I'd be very annoyed. I'll allow this movies. You say that, but if whenever people finally watch Fast and the Furious Nine seven years from now, they could I could see the audience not giving a shit if they never explain why Han is back. <laughs> now, now. People get mad about some of that stuff. Like Star Wars, Palpatine just being around. That that got people upset. Let's not bring up Star Wars. Good. Until said otherwise, Palpatine is a cyborg. <laughs> They're leaning towards clone in the latest round of revisions. I uh, It's in the novel. I like to imagine that's not Palpatine. <laughs> it's that's Palpa just friend. a dude trolling the universe. Ah, uh, uh, oh, he's like that dude who was professionally George W. Bush for a while. Like he was the <laughs> Empire's version of that, and now it's his time to consolidate power. I mean, thematically, that actually would have rolled pretty well with the new Star Wars trilogy, <laughs> considering how much those films are obsessed with. Hey, our predecessor series was really famous. How in the world are we supposed to adapt from those and grow? Um, I would just like to take a second to say all these years later, I'm still very angry that uh, someone screwed up uh, 
doing the credits for this. So it's never so it just made its way into every piece of a uh, of official creditization for for X Men Three: The Last Stand, uh, which is Ken Loon being credited as Kid Omega and not Quill. He's playing Quill, not Kid Omega. I wish Kid Omega was here because <laughs> Jesus Christ, would that ever be amazing? Mike, can you explain to me what the fuck a Kid Omega is? Why why you gotta ask me to explain a Grant Morrison character while the credits Mike, are rolling? How long you do you have, wanna be here, motherfucker? Mike, you have three minutes. Give me the three minute version of what this character is. See, back in the day, the Phoenix Force split itself up into five different forms. Uh, no, to, the, the fucked up thing is, no, to first to explain Kid Omega, you have to explain the history of racism and then how it plays against... Mike, let's just assume I know what racism is. Can you move forward explaining this character with that ground level? J oh, hey, Rick Baker. J Jamie, back me up. There's knowing what racism is and then knowing Grant Morrison's explanation of what racism is. Sub racism for any noun, and that that holds true. Yeah, imagine like you think you know what like uh, French onion soup is. I do. Okay, but you don't know Grant Morrison's French onion soup. That's very possible. Um, how about this? I have a song I can share with you that would actually perfectly explain Kid Omega. I don't believe in music. You have to teach me through the power of words during the remainder of these credits. You are now down to a minute and 37 seconds. It's a rap song. So actually it is with yeah. the power of words. That does help. Yeah, it, it does. He, he cut, you know, uh, Kid Omega, he cut his hair. Um, <laughs> so he, he, uh, he dyed it, you know, um, and he, uh, he led a teenage gang for a while. Um, then he became a member of the Phoenix Five. Um, but this was long after his, um, because his brain powers, they, they overdeveloped to such a degree after he, uh, after he became a kind of sub villain for a little while, because one of the step for cuckoos wouldn't fuck him. And, um, this, this, this performance artist mutant was, um, OD'd, uh, in mutant town from a aerosol version of uh, the supervillain known as Sublime, who um, is actually from prehistory. He was uh, the second uh, single-cell organism to actually um, be born um, in the universe. So anyway, uh, uh, Quentin's powers went uh, so haywire that he um, ascended to god status and went into a coma. So his powers are he has all powers? No, he's just psychic. Oh. See, Quentin Choir was created by Grant Morrison as a visual, rep a, a character representation of the Sekhmet hypotheses, which suggests that major youth trends can be correlated to peaks in the 11-year solar cycle. Hey, guys, look, we're on a movie. Wow, that worked. Holy shit. Cool. <laughs> I have powers. That was, that was good. I'm an X-Men. Good timing. Folks, this has been Box Office Pulp. If you've enjoyed watching this commentary with us we have plenty more to offer uh several others in the x-men line and hopefully several more to come depending on if we get up the urge to actually you know record x-men origins wolverine oh boy it's got the blob that's true that's all that matters but we have other commentaries too if you're not just interested in x-men all sorts of fun stuff you can find us at box office pulp on twitter 
Uh, we're also on Stitcher, iTunes, WordPress. You look up Box Office Pulp, you'll probably find us on one of the first two pages. So please, go ahead, uh, like, subscribe, friend, whatever you do, you. Find more of us. We appreciate those clicks. As for me, uh, you can read my various ramblings on horror movies at horrormovieshub.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Lucky Deck Napier for, you know, whatever latest random thing I'm listening to or talking about or vaguely mad at. And you can check me out on my YouTube channel, Comic Macabre, where my alter ego, Marlena Morlock, uh, takes a look at obscure pieces of media from the history of comics and horror. It's a hoot. <laughs> Is that how you end every episode? It's a blast. Come on, Joan. Royalty-free hoot nanny music. <laughs> Can that That's be all... our theme song now? <laughs> Royalty-free hoot nanny music. <laughs> I mean, why not? People would love it. Be dance around the town square, just like it was 1835 all over again. Hey, guys, why don't we all take the cure for this recording and end it? No, because we have to... So so last episode we did, we did a prayer to try and bring Wes Craven back from the dead, and we got the announcement of Scream 5 like two days later. <laughs> oh, yeah. I take full work. credit for that. I need I need everyone to gather around me. Spirit bomb your energy with me. Um, um, we're going to be a couple days ahead of you, listener, but just, just pretend we're still charging our psychic muscles. And I need us all to take a moment of silence to please try and resurrect Toby Hooper from the grave. I'll count the time. All right, folks. If that doesn't do it, nothing will. So I'm very excited to hear about Poltergeist 4. Anyways, that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. You ever just want to scratch Beast's stomach in this movie? Give him tummy rubs? Yeah, it seems kind of comfy. He seems more dog than cat-like, so you'd probably be able to get out of that without having him maul you. It's true. God, he looks like I just want to, like, curl up on him and go to sleep. Hmm. Yeah, he's no nightcrawler. I like bacon and scrambled eggs. <laughs> Damn it, we almost got the entire way through without any Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> almost! This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. <laughs>